Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, C4. It's great to have you here, and a warm welcome to those of you who are physically joining us. And then uh, throughout the week, some people are going to be joining online. And so in advance, a warm welcome uh, to you. Uh, Today is the last uh, message in this series that we've been doing. Pastor John has been leading us through the book of Philippians, uh, and he has entitled this whole series, Joy in Suffering, as we've been looking at the Philippian church and Paul's letter back to the Philippian church, uh, a church that was in the midst of uh, great poverty, in the midst of great suffering, and, and Paul instructs them about how to actually find joy and to rejoice in the, in the midst of, of that suffering time. And so it's my privilege this morning to, to uh, conclude this whole message series as Pastor John and Joanna are on vacation enjoying themselves uh, down south. And so uh, I'm going to be uh, talking to you this morning about joy and suffering together. Because at the end of the letter, I believe that Paul reflects back uh, on his relationship with the church at Philippi, and he talks about joy and suffering, but he talks about the togetherness of joy and suffering and what they've been able to accomplish together, what they've been able to share together as they rejoice in the Lord, as they continue to rejoice in the Lord, even in the midst of personal and corporate suffering. So if you have your Bible, if you're using a paper Bible this morning, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the last section, which is verses 10 through to 23. And if you're navigating on an electronic Bible, um, there's Wi-Fi in the place. And so you can, you can navigate there and turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning as we finish off, as I get the privilege of finishing off this whole series. I know a bunch of you know, uh, I just got back from Uganda about a week and a half ago, and uh, so finally my internal clock is all turned around, and I'm, I'm sleeping at night, and I'm not up at nights, but, uh, but you know, as I uh, reflected on my trip to Uganda this week as I was preparing and as I was studying, I, you know, I, th- I thought about, about that time there, and I thought about Paul's words back to the church at Philippi. And particularly in Philippians chapter 4, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And here, here's you know, what I thought about. Ministry really is a team sport. I love team sports. I love all sports. But I particularly enjoy playing on team sports. But ministry is really a team sport. In the case of my involvement in Uganda... Ministry is really a team sport. I mean, we, we, we look at the ministry that goes on there where, where we're able to train and equip pastors to go out into various parts of East Africa and to take the good news of Christ to communities. As we work with widows of war, those whose husbands have died because of war and because of HIV in that country. And as we uh, minister to refugees who pour in because of persecution in neighboring countries. And I thought to myself, you know, ministry really is a team sport. You know, it takes people on the ground in Africa, men and women who, who actually give of their very lives every day to, to care for the needs of other people, who selflessly give up their own agenda, you know, who don't want to get rich, who don't want to just sit on a beach in Jamaica, but who actually give their lives every day for the sake of other people. But not only does it take people on the ground in Africa, but it takes people on the ground in Canada. 
And there are churches that are supporting that particular ministry. There are individuals who are investing heavily in that particular ministry. And, and, and there are businesses, and, and there are just people all over who, who are really standing behind. And that's just one. That's just one small, quite insignificant ministry happening in the country of Uganda. And the same is true here at C4 as I reflected on it. I mean, if you think about what's even happening this morning let alone what happens all during the week in this place. But if you think about what's happening this morning, so Pastor Gary and his team, there's a whole army of them over there in, in, in fusion, and you know, they're teaching and preaching, and there's often worship teams of students and adults who come behind them and, and lead them together. And then, then Jillian, Pastor Jillian and the whole army of people who are with her, who are, you know, it's all happening kind of back here, and the numerous volunteers and then, you know, we were led by a skilled worship team this morning who, who practice and give of their time and who come here really early on Sunday mornings just so that what they offer you is their absolute best. And, and there's scores of you in other ways. There's ushers and greeters and parking lot attendants and all kinds of great people involved. See, ministry really is about togetherness. You know, there's, there's, there's no lone rangers in ministry. There's no superstars in, in the ministry, we all have parts to play, and we all have a role to play, and, and it's something beautiful about the church when that all comes together, and it really works, because God empowers it to work, and the Holy Spirit moves. So now at the end of the book of Philippians, as the Apostle Paul now comes to the end of this letter to his friends, to a church that he had the privilege of pastoring and planting, he shifts from teaching to really kind of personal remarks. He, he's getting a lot more personal. He, he's beginning to talk to them now as a pastor, but also as a friend now, as a co-laborer in ministry. And his words become a lot more personal in nature as he reflects on how they have found joy in suffering together. So let me share with you this morning some reflections that I have on the passage that I think the Apostle Paul was trying to get across to his friends in the church at Philippi on how you and I can actually face suffering together and find joy in the midst of it. So the first thing that I see Paul reflecting on is this. He reflects on the secret of contentment. You know, contentment is something that's very, very difficult for us as Canadians, as North Americans, because we're bombarded with messages that are all aimed at telling us we actually shouldn't be content. And, and you know, I, didn't, I hadn't seen the video ahead of time, but it was just a great video that was chosen to play this morning, because one of the things that just comes through loud and clear in that video is, how do you gain contentment? And people said, it's really easy. Here's how you gain contentment. You know, a million dollars was kind of, I think, the minimum starting. And then one guy had the audacity to ask for a billion. And then another guy, he just wanted to rule the world. <laughs> I'm really not sure that I would be content if I was ruling the world. I got enough trouble, you know, just working here at C4. Um, so, you know, I, so, you know I, I have trouble just managing what I've got in front of me. So never mind trying to rule the whole world. But it's interesting to see, you know, what people want in order to find contentment. And yet the Apostle Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I think that's really something for us this morning, that, that there's, there's this secret of contentment that Paul talks about, and in the midst of suffering, not even in just plain old ordinary good times, but in the midst of suffering, 
Paul says, you know what? I found a secret, and it's a secret of contentment. In verse 10, he says this, writing to them, and he begins to turn more personal now in nature. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. See, a source of joy for Paul in the midst of his own suffering while he's in jail in Rome is the partnership that exists between him and the Philippian church. You know, Paul has a lot of downtime. He's, in, he's, he's under house arrest. He's in prison in Rome. And he says, you know, as I reflect on all of my three missionary journeys that I've done, as I reflect on all of the churches that God has used me in planting, and there were numerous churches, he, he, he remembers one specific time when God called him out of his kind of his homeland, out of, out of the, the, the uh, area of Israel, over into Europe, And he went over into Macedonia, and there he planted a church at Philippi. It's the first church that he planted in this new venture. And as he he sits and as he reflects on that in prison, he says, you know what? It's a source of joy for me. Because I remember, I, I remember the partnership that we have in the gospel. And I know that from the very start, you supported me in my ministry. But now, even years later, you're still supporting me in ministry. And as you've now sent a gift, as you've renewed your partnership and your gift with me, he says, as I reflect on that and as I think of that, even in the midst of my own suffering in jail, not knowing what tomorrow is going to hold, it's a source of joy for me. I rejoice in that. I rejoice greatly in the Lord in what you've done. Verse 11, he says, Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, now we have to understand, you know, we're kind of like, Paul, wow, that's kind of like a little backhanded comment. You know, you you compliment them and then you give. You got to understand that in Paul's day, as is very true in our day today, there were itinerant itinerant preachers who went around preaching a different kind of gospel. Today, we'd probably call it a prosperity gospel. And what they would do is they would go into churches in Paul's day and they would, they would puff themselves up and they would talk about how they've been initiated into the supernatural by God and they've attained something that other people have not attained and, and people ought to give a lot of money to their ministries. You should sow seeds into their ministries because if you do, God's going to do really great things in your life. And so there was this exchange that they would preach, not unlike preachers who preach in our day. And so what Paul is saying here is, you've renewed your commitment to me, and you guys have been involved in supporting my ministry, and you've done a wonderful thing, but not that I asked for it, and not that I'm in need of it, because I've actually learned to be content. I've learned to be content in all kinds of circumstances. Now, he's grateful for the support that they've given because it's actually enabled him to do ministry, but he's saying, look, I, I didn't really ask for it, and I don't really need it, Because I've learned this secret of contentment. And when Paul says there in verse 11, for I have learned to be content, he uses a very interesting word. It's a word that really means to be initiated into something through trial and testing and tribulation. What Paul is saying to them is, I've learned to be content. This is the latter stages of Paul's life, right? He's in prison. Paul's never going to be free from this. And he's writing this 
you know, with the perspective of years of ministry. And he said, you know, all the stuff that I went through in my life, you know, when I was beaten, when I was shipwrecked, when I was stoned and left for dead, you know, when I was mistreated by people, when friends turned on me, you know, all of that stuff, it actually initiated me into the secret of contentment. I've learned. I've learned what it means to be content. He's saying, so I appreciate your gift, but you know what? I'm content in every circumstance because of all of the stuff that I've gone through. What he's really saying is I've learned to find joy in the midst of suffering. I've learned to find it. And he's going to go on in a second, and he's going to describe what even some of that looks like, and he's going to contrast what his life looks like. And we struggle sometimes with this whole area of contentment. Because there are things that actually, you know, make us discontent in our culture and in our world, the world that you and I live in. There are sources of discontent. Let me mention just a couple of them very quickly for you. You know, one of the sources of discontent for us is that I find that I get discontent when I start comparing myself to other people. You know, here's the reality. I think here's what Paul would say to us. And here's what I think we know cognitively, but we have to kind of embrace it in our hearts. You know, there are always going to be people who are wealthier than you. There are always going to be people who are more beautiful than you, more talented than you, more people with more opportunities than you. And it's when we fix our eyes on those people and what they have and what we don't have that there's this tendency or this temptation to become discontent. But when we focus on what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has given us, I think we could stand with the Apostle Paul and we can say, I have learned the secret of contentment. So don't compare yourself to other people, I think Paul would say, and I would urge you today. I think another source of discontentment comes from not being able to cope with change. I think that's a huge one for people inside the church especially. Why? Because change is always so darn disruptive. You know, we just, we just kind of get used to doing something a certain way, or we just kind of get things, you know, just the way we like them, and then somebody, you know, goes and changes everything. And we just when we're kind of getting used to it, and it kind of begins to rob us of our contentment. And so, you know, you know, we need to be careful how we handle things like change, because essentially, you and I are creatures of habit. You know, I'm amazed that when I stand in front of the mirror every morning, how much a creature of habit I am. Like, have you ever tried brushing your teeth with the other hand? Like, you just hack your gums up. I think that's what happens with me. Guys, if you're shaving, right? I have this routine. I could do it in my sleep. You know, I always start in the same spot on my face, right? And it's just, and I was thinking about it, you know, this morning, I'm like, oh my gosh, I am such a creature of habit. And you know, Jen, you know, Jen's lying in bed. I've brought her her coffee already because I am a creature of habit in bed, you know, and, uh, and then she'll be like, what are you moaning and groaning about in there? And I just, I have all my little habits that I go through, okay? And don't judge me because you're the same, okay? <laughs> don't judge me. Maybe you don't bring your wife coffee in bed every morning, but you, you know, you do the other stuff, okay? But don't judge me just because I'm awesome, okay? And I know some of you hate me because of the cards thing. We can deal with that later too, okay, guys? Yeah. But you know, discontent, right? We can, we can become discontent, and it's a, it seems like it's just the simplest little things sometimes just kind of throw us off, and, and we lose our contentment. And Paul says, look, I've learned the secret of contentment. 
So in learning to find joy in suffering, you know, Paul says, let me help explain to you the secret of contentment. And he outlines it in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. First of all, he says, look, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living plenty or in want. But Paul uses three extremes, three sets of extremes, and he uses them as a contrast, right? He says, I know what it is to be in need, but I also know what it is to have plenty. He says, I, I, I know what it is to be well-fed, but I also know what it is to be hungry. And he says, I know what it is to be living in plenty, and I also know what it is to be living in want. And he's saying, look, I've experienced the highs and the lows of life just like you. But in the midst of all of the highs and lows of life, I've learned the secret of contentment. You know what it is? One of the secrets? Flexibility. Flexibility. That's what Paul is pointing to here. If you want a quality that is going to enhance your contentment in life, learn to live with flexibility. You know, you know I don't have a ton of wisdom, but there's some things that I've picked up over the years. Let me tell you one of them in this area of flexibility. I think there are two seasons in life where people, and especially people in the church, which is all of you, struggle with this thing of flexibility. Are you ready? Got your pens out? You ready for this? Write it down. The first one, the first time in life when you really struggle with flexibility is when you're under 30. The second is when you're over 30. Now, I'm not just trying to be funny there because I really, I picked the age very intentionally. You see, when, when you're under 30, you tend to be inflexible because actually you think you know everything. And you just haven't learned yet that you don't, okay? I, I hope I didn't burst anybody's bubble this morning. And that should be fun tonight at the young adult service. But anyways, so, um, but here's what happens when you're under 30. Like you really do, you, you, you know, you're kind of more headstrong, you're more bullish, you're more pig-headed, and, and you kind of are a little inflexible when you're under 30 because you think you know everything. What happens then when you get over 30, your inflexibility comes because you actually start getting stuck in your ways a little bit. And you're just not as pliable as you once were. I'm not just talking about those aches and pains after running or working out. And in the church, we really need to learn flexibility. Like, let me just use a case in point, only because it's the most recent. So I don't pick it because it's the most important. I just pick it because, it's, it, for me, it was just a great, great illustration of what I'm talking about. So last weekend, we had this huge event here called 905 in the evening. Okay? And so, you know, people poured in and people watched online and stuff like that. And so we had this great event, and it was great. And, and if you haven't ever been to a 905, you know, it's, it's in here, it's loud. We, uh, we set off the smoke alarm uh, about half an hour before we were due to open the doors, and the fire trucks all showed up, so we, we practiced our emergency procedures. We evacuated the whole building. People were panicking, like people in production, because they're like, we're, we, we got to do sound tests. And I'm like, get out of the building. we got to get out. So we're doing all of this flexibility, right? And so then they take over every area of the building. There's not a room that doesn't get used. So, you know, then this week happens, and we all come back to ministry again, and people are like, oh, where's my stuff? Uh, Like there's all this gear hanging around all over the place. There's gear everywhere. What's going on? And then we get a little inflexible with one another. But here for me is a great equalizer. There are tons of people who are in the kingdom of God as a result of last Sunday night that weren't before Sunday night happened. 
Amen. Amen. And so we, learn, we need to learn a little flexibility with one another in ministry because you know what? If we don't, it's just going to rob us of our contentment. And we should find our contentment and a source of our contentment in the fact that young people came to know Jesus last Sunday night. And we only know about the ones who came here and we had to get extra help over in the prayer room because there were so many people that came. But we don't even know about the people online yet. So we need to learn some flexibility in ministry because it'll just rob us of our contentment if we don't learn it. The second quality that Paul, I think, talks about in the secret of contentment is just confidence. Look at verse 13. Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul says, you know what? When I'm, when I'm, when I'm threatened, when my... When my contentment is threatened, when I'm not well-fed, or when I'm in trouble, or when, I, when I'm tempted to be inflexible, he says, this is what I remember. I can actually do everything, do everything through him who gives me the strength. See, you don't do this stuff in your own strength. Ministry's way too dangerous a sport to ever try and do it in your own strength. You'll get killed in ministry. But we do it in the strength of the one who empowers us to do ministry. And so Paul says, I don't put my confidence in the flesh. I don't put my confidence in my own ability. And you remember Pastor John preached on that in chapter three of Philippians. Paul's already outlined a whole discourse on this. I was a Jew of the Jews. I had all the credentials. I, I had you know, my earned doctorate, you know, and I had it all going on. But I don't put any confidence in that stuff, he says. I consider all of that rubbish. I just wanna know Christ. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, somehow becoming like him in his death. And so, if you want to learn the secret of contentment, a good starting place is flexibility and confidence in the Lord. See, contentment is learned. It's learned through trials and struggles and good times and bad times by placing our trust and relying on him to meet our needs regardless of the circumstances. The second reflection that I think Paul has and that I want to talk about is on, Paul reflects on the promise of provision. In these next verses, Paul reflects on how the Philippian church has been used by God to meet Paul's needs in ministry over and over and over again. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 is a verse that many Christians memorize. Because they, they see it as a promise, and it is a promise. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And they go, awesome, I will take that. I'll take that to the bank with me, okay? God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Seems to me Christ is pretty rich. You know, he covers kind of everything, and if he's promised to meet all of my needs, then, man, this is a done deal. I'll take this promise. But, you know, I think like so many promises in the Scripture, I think this promise is conditional. I think you have to meet some conditions, and you have to meet some criteria before you can take this to the bank, before you can claim this promise for yourself. And I think in verses 14 through 18, Paul outlines what those conditions are because he reflects on what has happened with the Philippian church. The first 
condition for claiming this promise, I think, is compassion. In verse 14, Paul says this. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. You just stop for a second. The Philippian church. What do we know about the Philippian church from this letter and through Acts chapter 16, where the birth of the church happens? Well, we know that this church was under extreme persecution. From the time that the church was formed up until the time of Paul writing this letter, the Philippian church has continuously endured persecution and hardship and the threat from the townspeople of actually, well, imprisoning them and killing them. But Paul says, in the midst of all of your suffering, it was really good for you to share in my troubles. Like in the midst of all of your suffering, you didn't just look inward, you actually looked outward and you looked at me and you saw that I was in trouble and you actually helped me. And he commends them for their heart of compassion. And one of the things that we continuously need to cultivate as Christians is hearts that are moved with compassion towards other people. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, whether we're well-fed or we're hungry, whether in good times or we're in bad times, it should never negate a heart that is filled with compassion towards the needs of those who are around about us. Paul had numerous needs as he traveled on his missionary journeys and now as he sat in a Roman jail. And through it all, the Philippian church lent him their support They were moved with compassion towards Paul and the mission that God had called him to. The second condition, I think, for claiming this promise is generosity. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, as he goes on, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Now, we just finished a couple of weeks on generosity, so I'm not going to take a lot of time. You need to go back and look at that series that I did, the two-week series on generosity. But I, but I want to point out here what Paul says. Paul says that, that, that they really showed generosity in a number of ways. Look at the wording that Paul uses in these verses. In verse 16, he says, And you sent me aid Again and again. <laughs> See, it wasn't a one-time gift that they sent to Paul. But they, but they sent aid to Paul again and again. In the midst of their own poverty, in the midst of their own suffering, in the midst of their own trials and tribulations, they had hearts of compassion. They looked on Paul and his need, and they sent aid to Paul again and again. But they also didn't just send Paul money, which I think is very interesting when you look at the passage, but they sent Paul money plus one of their best and brightest leaders, Epaphroditus. We find him first introduced in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25. He's the one that actually physically brings the gift, and then Paul goes on to say he got really sick, and God spared him, and I'm glad because I would have been heartbroken if that hadn't happened, but you sent me this great gift of a person who has been so just incredibly helpful to me in my ministry while I'm here in jail. And so their generosity went actually beyond finances. Their generosity went to people, and they sent Paul, this great person. In fact, in speaking to another church, the church at Corinth, 
Paul uses the Philippians as an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Paul says this. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They sent Paul. Paul says to another church, you Corinthians, you're struggling with giving. You're struggling with this whole subject of generosity. Let me tell you about the Philippians. Extreme trial, extreme poverty, and yet they sent financial and they sent people to help me in my time of need. I remember I had a really humbling experience one time. When, I was, uh, when Jen and I were in Kenya for a while, um, I got invited to go and speak at a local church. It was a church that we had attended a number of times. It was called FPFK, Free Pentecostal Fellowship of Kenya. And they danced up a storm in there, and it was great. It was hot, and it was muggy, but it, it was just great. And so finally, they found out I was a pastor. And I tried to hide it for so long. And then they said, oh, you're a pastor. You must come and preach. And so you got to understand a little bit about this church. About 250, 300 people in this church. Wonderful. All Africans. Uh, Many of them had been converted out of the Maasai warrior tribe into Christianity. And and so they were there. And these these were not wealthy people. These were very poor people. These were herders. These were people who, who earned very little income. And so I got up there one Sunday morning and I preached my heart out. I just, I preached and I was soaked from here to about my waist. I was just drenched and I just gave them everything. And then I went and sat down and then the pastor got up and he said, now we're going to take up an offering for the man of God. And I just sank in my seat. I'm like, no, <laughs> like how do I stop this? <laughs> These people had already given their morning offering to the church, and now the pastor had told them that because the man of God had given them such a great word from God, that they were obliged to pay the man of God. And so Jen's already pulling on my, she's pulling, she's behind me, stop this, stop this, you can't let this happen. And I'm I'm like, what do I do, Jesus, what do I do? And so I leaned over to the pastor, because now the offering's in process, they cranked up the worship team, everyone's dancing, except the white people, and then we're, you know, we're, you know... (laughs) Because Christians don't dance, right? I mean, it's okay for other Christians, not for us, okay? So anyways, so they're all dancing up a storm, and, you know, I'm sitting down. I was tapping my toe. Um, but um, so then I said to the pastor, I said, Pastor David, I said, how do we stop this? I said, I don't have any needs. I don't have any needs. The church that I was pastoring was so gracious that they continued my salary while I was on sabbatical. And so he very graciously got up and thanked the people that the man of God was so excited about their response and how faithful they were to the things of the scripture. And he grace-filled, in a grace-filled way, he turned it around and used the money for a church plant that they were doing. But these people didn't sit back and go, oh yeah, well, I wonder how much he's making. Are you kidding me? Like I'm supposed to give the white guys here and he wants our money? Are you joking me? Their response was joy-filled. If you could have seen them dancing and, and throwing their money into these big, giant trays that were up there. Very humbling, humbling experience for me. Well, the third condition for claiming this promise, I think, is commitment. Look what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. Not that I'm looking for a gift. He's doing his emphasis, his emphasis again. But I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. 
I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul uses two metaphors here that would be well understood by the people. The first one is he uses the language of investment. He says, look, I'm really glad that you sent the gift of money and people because you actually are making a kingdom investment. He says, it's been credited to your account and I have received full payment. It's the language of the the stockbroker. It's investment language that Paul's using. And he's saying, thank you for not only your compassion and and, and, thank you not only for your generosity, but thank you that you're making strategic investments in the kingdom of God. And then the second metaphor that he use, uses is Old Testament worship, where he says they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable uh, sacrifice to God. It's intentionality, it's commitment that is behind. So not only were they just moved inside, and not only did they have some means, even in their extreme poverty, but they actually follow through on it, and they do something about it. And that's where commitment comes in. So often, we are moved with compassion, And so often we have means to do things, but we put it off. We say, another time, another place, I'll follow through on that. Paul says, you need commitment. And so based on these conditions, I believe that Paul then says to them in verse 19, and because of all of this, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It's a conditional promise. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary statesman, said this, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never lack God's supply. These are great words from someone who had been there and done that. Well, the final reflection that I have is on the opportunity to influence. You know, there's often a tendency at the end of a book like Philippians, you get to, you know, that last section, and in my NIV Bible, you know, it's, it's actually sectioned out, and it says, final greetings. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, 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 this is Paul stuff, right? You know, we read it. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. And you go, yeah, that's how Paul says goodbye in a letter, if you look at Paul's letters. But there's this nugget in the middle of it that you just can't overlook. You can't miss it, right? All of the saints send you greetings, especially those from Caesar's household. See, Paul's in jail, but he has an opportunity even from jail to influence because he's in jail, he has access to some of Caesar's elite guards, to maybe some of, some of Caesar's um, family members. And Paul is saying, the saints, this is code language, the saints of Caesar's household, those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, they send you greetings too. And Paul is saying, because we have found joy in suffering together, and because you have continued to support my ministry even while I'm in prison, I've had a chance to influence. And some of Caesar's own family and some of those who are close to Caesar have responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we never know who's in our midst. We never know who we have the opportunity to influence. We never know who's right close to us. And we need to seize these opportunities for influence as we find joy and suffering together. As we partner in ministry together, there is opportunity for us 
to influence some significant people. So we come to the end you know, of our series on the book of Philippians. You know, John and I were sitting and we were talking. You know, we often, we often talk about the upcoming message and when he's preparing, he'll say, here's what I'm thinking, here's where I'm going, what do you think? And, you know, we'll banter back and forth. And so, you know, because I was preaching this week, I, you know, we sat down and we got to banter back and forth. And, 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 you know, this is just something that both of us talked about as we talked about this morning. You know, he said, we're finishing off this whole series. It seems like another really significant series in our midst as we talk about joy. We have this theme of joy this year as a church. And as a church, you know, we spent 10 weeks looking at joy in serving when, we, when John did the spiritual gift series that was so significant. We've spent two weeks on joy in giving when I did the generosity series. And now we've spent 10 weeks in joy in suffering through the book of Philippians. That, if my math is correct, that's 20 weeks focusing in on joy. So here's the question. How's your joy? <laughs> like, really? How are you doing when it comes to this area of joy? Because you've sat under 20 continuous weeks themed around what the Scripture says on joy. And we have to ask ourselves, do I have any more joy in my life? Am I a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word? Am I putting stuff into practice? Am I finding more joy in serving? Am I finding more joy in being generous? Am I finding more joy when I suffer? And it's a question that we need to ask ourselves and that we need to ask the Lord to reveal to us. If there's no more joy in our lives, why, Lord? Why would there be no more joy? So I want to close this morning and I want to close this whole series with something that I stole from Chuck Swindoll because Chucky is awesome. Three thoughts. The first one, as we finish this whole series and as you think about joy, look inward and release. I love how he says that. Look inward and release. What are the things as you look inside yourself that are robbing you of your joy? What are the things that are holding you back from, from finding joy in service, joy in generosity, joy in the midst of your suffering? Whatever those are, look in and release them to God. Give them to Jesus. He says next, look outward and respond. Don't wait for other people to respond. Look outward. And when you see need, when your heart is moved with compassion, you re respond with, with, with rejoicing spontaneously. Don't wait for a program. You take the lead. You be a leader in this. And you'll find joy in that. And then finally he says, look upward and rejoice. Look upward and see that all that God has done for me, all that God has done for you, all that... That, that the salvation that you have received in Jesus Christ has credited to your account. And when you think of all that Jesus has done, look up and rejoice. Look up and celebrate. Look up and be filled with awe and wonder at what Christ has done on your behalf. And as we close out this series, and as we close out this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. And one of the best ways to do that, the best ways to look 
inward and to look outward and to look upward is during a time of communion. And so we're going to celebrate communion. And so, Dan, why don't you and the team come and get ready to lead us in a worship response? But, but as, we, as we now begin to move into this communion time, it's going to be past communion this morning. I'd really encourage you, if you know the Lord, if you are a Christian, if you're someone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you take the time to look inward first and to see if there's anything that's robbing your joy, whether it's sin that you've committed, whether it's an offense that you've done against another person, whether it's a broken relationship, to speak to Jesus about that and to obey his promptings should he ask you to do something about it. Next, I would invite you to look outward. To look outward and, and to, to see what God might be calling you to do, whether it's in this church or whether it's around the world. What, what is it that Jesus wants to call you towards because you're his child? And then as you take the elements and as you remember the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus, let's look upward and let's be filled with joy and wonder and thanksgiving at all that Christ has done for us. And if you don't know the Savior yet, if you haven't crossed that line of faith, I would encourage you this morning to consider it very seriously, to think about the sacrifice that Jesus has made on your behalf. And if God has been tugging at your heart this morning, if God has been prompting you this morning for a relationship with him, then why not this morning? Why not this morning come to him and simply say, I need your joy. I need to experience what, the, what King David said in Psalm 51, the joy of your salvation. Because ultimately, that's where we find our source of joy in the person and the work of Christ. And so let me lead you in a prayer now of thanksgiving for these elements. And then Dan and the team will lead us in a worship response. And then as the elements are passed, for those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, participate freely this morning. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, you know, thank you for this book of Philippians and, and how it's been really inspirational. And... Uh, you know, we can find joy even in the midst of our suffering. Jesus, I pray now for those who are really wrestling with you over salvation. I pray that you'd continue to lovingly and wonderfully draw them to yourself. Continue to speak to them. Continue to do your wonderful work. And for these elements that we're going to take now, we thank you for the bread that represents the broken body of Christ on the cross. We thank you for the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed because the scripture in the Old Testament says that if there isn't the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And we're grateful that in Jesus and in his substitutionary sacrifice, because it should have been us, we can find forgiveness and freedom and cleansing. And we rejoice in that. So help us now, Lord. Speak to us as we do this together in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.